Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? I alluded to it this morning, but it's, it's just funny. You know, when I saw on the calendar that this is the day where we're going to talk about peace for Advent, I just thought, oh, what kind of morning is this going to be? Because it, it's often the case, right, that when we come into these seasons that, first of all, there's an evil one that's trying to discourage us internally. But then I also think our, I mean, our Father who loves us, every once in a while, I think he sows just a few, a few uh, little rocks in the path just to remind us where our peace ultimately comes from. And so I feel very prayerful, and I'm depending on him, and I think I'm ready to start. So Isaiah chapter 9. Um, I might be breaking a rule, but this year as we come into Advent, we are actually going to be uh, jumping back into the series that we began last year. That's right. We're picking up where we left off 12 months ago. And if you're here and you're saying, I do not remember what we talked about 12 months ago, uh, you are in good company. I don't expect that you remember exactly where we were. Um, but I will take an opportunity to plug, um, if you weren't with us here last Christmas, you can go onto our website and you can look up uh, our sermon series and you could, you could actually go back and listen through. And I wouldn't normally do that, but the, one of the goals of this series is to help us to see um, Christmas and understand the coming of Jesus in the lens of, of all of Scripture. So if you can imagine in your mind, you know, we're zoomed in on the manger the goal of this series is that we'd pull back with a wide lens and we would actually look at the Christmas story right from the very beginning. And so if you were to go back and listen to those sermons, you'd see that we started all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then we followed it to the family of Abraham, and we followed that to King David, and we followed that to Micah's prophecy that the Savior would come in Bethlehem. And the point is that this Christmas story isn't just some twist in the story. It isn't some unexpected event. This was the plan from the very beginning. And that's why the series is called Promise Keepers. And my original outline for my introduction was to walk through and give a bit of a survey of what came before. But um, as I was preparing this morning, I, I crossed all of that out, and I, I kind of felt myself drawn to a question. And the question that I would put before you as we prepare to jump into this sermon is this. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? What's wrong with this world that we're still killing each other? hating each other, fighting over land, fighting over resources, doing, doing unimaginably horrific things to each other. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with this city? I, we have many who are involved with the lighthouse in our group. I was there for a Bible study on Wednesday morning. The number of people who died this, this week in our city, the number of people who committed suicide this week in our city, the amount of hopelessness and despair and depression and anxiety that is permeating through this. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with our families? How many of us have been feeling that? I've just been rocked by that recently. Like, what, just, how do we make sense of this? How do we get back on track? It's like we're talking past each other. It, it is a mess. What's wrong with this guy looking back at me in the mirror? Or this girl looking back at me in the mirror? I wonder if any of us have felt that this week going back to the same patterns that destroyed me previously, going back to the same things that I know won't bring life, it's, it's just a mess. I mean, it, the, you look at the bookshelves and the number of books that are going out, the self-help resources, the, all these tools, we're all recognizing there's something that's wrong. What is wrong with us? And I was drawn to that question because I, I just, I am not a big fan of superficial Christmas. I'm not a bit, we were listening to um, the secular radio station yesterday for a stretch and just listening to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and then oh, another song about Rudolph again, how fast he is. Here, he's running now, 
Rudolph's running and then Santa Claus. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad that we're not in that superficial world, you know, that we can turn to this. But even as a Christian, sometimes we can take this beautiful mystery and we can make this superficial, can't we? And it can just turn into traditionalism. And I thought, how is it, how do we miss the glory of this? And I thought, part of the problem is sometimes we lose sight of what is wrong with us. You know, Christmas is a solution to a problem. But if we lose sight of the problem, then the solution doesn't make sense. And it just becomes this traditional thing, this, this fluff. It's not fluff. And so, again, we, I said Genesis 3 is where we started the series back 12 months ago. In Genesis 3, we're in the garden. Adam and Eve are in the garden with God. Everything is perfect. It's the way that it should be. But our enemy deceived our spiritual father and mother, Adam and Eve, into rejecting and rebelling against God. And for the first time, we sinned. And that was like inserting a virus into God's good creation. And that virus has been ruining us and ruining our families and ruining our cities and ruining this world ever since. Everything that's wrong with this world and everything that's wrong with you and me is because of sin. That's what's wrong with us. And it's wreaking havoc in us. And in Genesis 3, God made a promise to the serpent. And he said that a child is going to be born to a woman. And you're going to strike his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. God made a promise to the serpent, to the evil one. And he said, a champion is coming who is going to set things right. And he's going to bring you down. And that promise is is the storyline of the Bible. So as you're reading through the Old Testament, you're following this thread of promise, and we're waiting for the child who will come, who will once and for all set things right, defeat the evil one, and bring us back to where we were supposed to be. And so we've been following that thread in this series. Again, you can go back and look. But today we're picking up the thread in this beautiful passage in Isaiah 9. And Zayd already read a portion of it for us today. And in Isaiah 9, this thread is picked up in a particularly particularly dark season. It was a time when Assyria, they were the most powerful nation in the planet, on the planet at the time. Uh, they had an army that was doing horrific things, and Assyria was coming down, and you can imagine just like, like this threshing. They're threshing through the northern tribes of Israel, um, just leaving absolute destruction in their wake. And in that moment of darkness, God spoke through the prophet, of, the prophet Isaiah to his people, and he gave this beautiful word of comfort. And he gave us a further glimpse of the child that was to come who would finally, once and for all, fix us, fix this. And so that's what we're coming to today. I hope you have your Bible open to Isaiah 9. We're going to read verses 1 to 7 as we catch a a further glimpse of this child of promise that is coming. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this passage is a familiar passage. It's arguably one of the most frequently quoted passage in all of the Old Testament, and rightfully so. And I think it wouldn't be an overstatement to say that, that this passage is a paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing prophecy. Because we talked about this thread of promise, that the people are waiting for a child who's going to make everything right. And so in Genesis 3, we're told it's going to be a child of a woman. In Genesis 12, God tells us he's going to come through the family of Abraham. And through him, he's going to bless all the nations. So we've got high hopes. And then in 2 Samuel 7, I believe it is, uh, we're told, he tells King David that he's going to be a king. He's going to sit on your throne forever. In Micah 5, we're told he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so we're zooming in. We're waiting for someone. But up until this point, while we know that he's going to do incredible things, and there's these hints of divinity, it's never really made explicit until now. God speaks to Isaiah and he says, the reason why he's going to be able to do all of these things is because this child who's coming, he will be God. He will be God. So to say this is a paradigm shift, again, it's an understatement. This, is, this changes everything. And in this beautiful prophecy that we've become so familiar with, God highlights who this child will be and what he will do. And so we're just going to walk through those two elements. So we're going to begin by asking the question, what child is this? What child is this? We find the answer in verse 6. Look there with me again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, who is this? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now in these four titles, again, Isaiah is clearly, unambiguously declaring that this coming child will be God himself. He will be God. And living as we do on this side of Christmas, we hear that and we go, hmm, yes, yes. But let's recognize this, the Israelite, you know, a worshiping Jew at this point, the average worshiping Jew, he's excited for someone who's coming, but he, this is not what he's anticipating. He's waiting for a good king, a really good king. Give me a good, good king who will finally set things right. But he doesn't realize that he needs a God king. And that's what's coming. He tells him, this, this child is going to be God, and every listener is going, what on earth? What do I do with that? Only a God king can bring about the things that need to be accomplished. I mean, how is an earthly king going to crush the, the devil's head? How is a man going to do that? How is a man going to bless all the nations like what God promised to Abraham? How will, how will a man reign on David's throne forever? It's like, no, you, you need more than a really, really good king. You need the God King, and that's who's coming. And so he describes him in these four titles. We're going to quickly move through these and just catch a glimpse of the anticipation that they would have felt in hearing this news. He tells them first, he will be wonderful counselor. Now, we use that term wonderful differently in English than it was used in Hebrew. Uh, we use wonderful as a synonym for, like, uh, delightful, uh, great, it's going to be splendid. Uh, that's not the way that it was used in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it was the nearest word in Hebrew, uh, had the idea of supernatural, here bringing a wisdom that is far above the human. 
So wonderful here is, is like supernatural. He is going to possess supernatural wisdom, this child who is coming. And boy, that's, that's what we need, isn't it? His words are going to cut right through to the heart of the problem. When he gives counsel, he will speak with the voice of God himself. And that's what Jesus does, right? Jesus is wisdom personified. He's the word made flesh. He speaks and dead men and women come out of their tombs. Jesus is the one that we need. He speaks with authority. In fact, when people heard him speak when he was with us in his earthly ministry, they said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. The wonderful counselor with supernatural wisdom. Man, I look at the problems in my life, the problems that we have in this world, and we need some supernatural wisdom, don't we? I mean, we've alluded to just what's happening right now, even in the Middle East. Think about how much earthly wisdom was required to negotiate even a temporary ceasefire. How is somebody going to bring an end to, to this chaos in our world? We need supernatural wisdom. Or, or just let's step into our, our own context. Look at our lives. Like, I'm looking at a room full of people, and I love you all. You're wonderful people, but none of us has it all together, do we? We got some problems. We have some things that we are just, it's just hard to sort through this. How do I get this sorted out in myself? We need supernatural wisdom. We've got plenty of voices speaking to us, trying to tell us the direction, trying to tell us which way to go, and yet we need a voice that will cut through all of the noise, all of the mess, and get right to the root of the problem. And that's what Jesus does who he is. And if, you've, if you have surrendered your life to him and you have listened to him as he's counseled and taught you, then you know that to be true. His is the voice that we need to follow. And, and listen, if you're here and you have not listened to him, I would challenge you today, listen to the wonderful counselor. Isaiah goes on to tell us that this coming child will be mighty God. Now the term wonderful, as I said, it alluded to divinity, but here Isaiah removes all doubt. He says, this child that is coming, he's going to do these impossible things, these seemingly impossible things. He's going to defeat this, our spiritual enemy. He's going to bless all of the nations. He's going to reign on the throne forever. And he can do these seemingly impossible things because he will be mighty God. That's who he is. There's no problem that will ever be beyond his ability to solve like, there's no obstacle that you can put in his way that will keep him from being able to protect and preserve his people. He came to set the captives free, and that is what he will do. In fact, that is what he has done. Jesus came, and on the cross, what did he say? It is what? It is finished. He has come, he has set the captive free, and now we are waiting for the day when that final victory will be culminated. But he's, he's accomplished it, and he could accomplish it because he is mighty God. And we can rest in that, that he's not, just, he's not just another good king. No, he's not, just a, he's not just another prophet. No, he is God himself, mighty God, come to rescue his people. That's why Jesus, when he was with us in his earthly ministry, he picked up the scroll of Isaiah. And he declared, after reading it, the one who's going to come, who's going to set the captives free, he rolled it up and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. That's who I am. He, Isaiah goes on to say, third, he will be called everlasting father. And now, if you're listening carefully to that, that might be a little bit confusing, right? Because if we hear that in a Trinitarian sense, is, is he saying that Jesus the Son is also God the Father? No, that would be the heresy of modalism, and Isaiah is not a heretic, and we don't want to be heretics either. So that's not what he's saying. 
What he's referring to here is the manner in which he will lead and love his people. He will love us as a father. He will care for us with a paternal, familial love. Which is a sweet promise. At this point in Israel's history, they've had plenty of experience with bad kings, bad leaders, the kind of people who uh, turn a blind eye to the needs of those that they were called to protect, the kind of wicked kings who impose extra taxes to make their lives more comfortable while people are starving to death. Israel has had their fair share of experience with, with rotten, lousy, self-serving kings. And Isaiah says, that's not who this child will be. He's going to love you the way that a father loves his child. And of course, remember, Israel at this point, they're, they're in the deepest, darkest place. What a sweet promise that this one who's coming, like a father, he's, he's going to come to us in this deep, dark place. He's going to stoop down, come near to us, lift us up, because that's who he is. That's how he loves. He doesn't love you, not even like a good king. A good king might serve you well, but a good king doesn't love you like a father loves his child. But Jesus is going to love his people in this way. And his reign is not going to be temporary. Israel had had some good kings too. Good kings come, but then of course good kings die, and then bad kings take their place. And so you can never get too excited. It's kind of like in Canada, you get a, a prime minister you like, and then oh, everybody goes. And then that's the system. But Isaiah looks forward and he says it won't be like that with him. He will be the everlasting father. He will take his place on the throne, and he'll never leave. And we will enjoy his rule forever. And then fourthly, he tells us this coming child, he will be the prince of peace. The Israelites longed for peace, but as is still the case today, that peace seemed like an, impos an impossibility. They're constantly at war with nations, but remember, Israelites, Jews, they would greet each other with shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. You greet each other with peace. And then when you, when you depart, that's the departing greeting as well, is shalom, peace, it's like longing for peace, right? Peace with the nations, but also peace with each other. Israel was a place that was divided. Peace within their homes, peace with, the, with their relationships with each other, peace with God. We need peace. We need someone who can lead us into peace. One commentator tells us here, the prince of peace is himself, the whole man, the perfectly integrated, rounded personality at one with God and humankind, but also as a prince, these are the benefits he administers to his people. He's the one who leads us into peace. He's the one who demonstrates what a life of peace looks like. And when you read the Gospels, don't we catch a glimpse of a, of a captivating life? Right? The way that he loved those around him, the way that he taught them, the way that he endured those who reviled him, the way that he obeyed the Father the life he demonstrated. That is, that's the life of peace, and he's the one who's leading us into it and showing us the way. And the only way that the Middle East will know peace, or Aurelia will know peace, or you and I will know peace, is if we surrender and submit ourselves to the Prince of Peace, who will bring his peace into the world. That's who he's going to be, this child. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. And with this prophecy, Israel's now been told in undeniable terms that the child they're waiting for will be nothing less than God himself. So as I said before, this is a paradigm shift. This changes everything. And it paves the way for what this child will do. Because now that we know who he is, suddenly the, the scope of what he's going to accomplish for us seems attainable. These are things that a man could not do, but God could do it. And so what will he accomplish? 
I want to draw your attention to three miraculous accomplishments. First, he will bring light into our darkness. So we find this in verse 2, but in order to appreciate it, I just want to say just a quick word again about the context. So as I said, Israel at this time they received this prophecy. They were, they were at war. And this wasn't like an even strength war. This was a being ground into the dust war. Assyria was, had horrific practices. We won't get into that. But th- these, uh, this was a powerful army that essentially used terrorist tactics against their opponents. And they were determined to just obliterate the nation of Israel. And that's what they did. Actually, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, like everybody in the north, was completely wiped off the map by this nation of Assyria. And Isaiah's prophesying, just as that is beginning to happen, right? The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, right at the north, they've already been wiped off the map. And the survivors have now fled to the south. And with horror in their eyes, they're telling the stories about what's coming. Like this this army, had just they destroyed my family, they destroyed our home, and they're coming for you. And so this whole nation is gripped with fear, a fear that we can't even understand. And that's what he's saying when he talks in verse 1. That's the context when he says, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So what he's saying here is to these, these people are living in the darkness. This isn't some hypothetical poetic thing. It's like, no, they're, they're living in the dark. They are horrified. This is the kind of darkness that, that makes it hard to see anything else. I don't know if you've ever lived through something like this. The kind of darkness that, that like changes your life forever. Like You'll never be the same after going through something like, like what they're going through right here. And God meets them in this darkness and he tells them that in this place where, where the darkness is really the darkest, in Zebulun and Naphtali, this land that's these people who've been wiped off the map, God is going to shine his light there. In the darkest place, he's going to meet his people in their need, and he's going to shine his light. It's the beautiful thing, because when you are sitting in the dark, it is hard to believe the promises of hope and life and light. But there is light. and There is life, and there is hope. And it's to these people sitting in the dark that God says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So he speaks to them in their despair. And listen, sometimes it's only when we've been brought to the deepest, darkest places that God's voice finally cuts through. There's something about the dark that attunes our ears to hear him. And Israel, at this point, had grown accustomed to ignoring him. They had been living in rebellion to him, living, living for their own pleasures, for their own life. But it was in this place of darkness that they were finally ready to listen. And that's true for us as well. He meets us when we're there in the deepest, darkest place. And, and when I say meets us, I mean he really, he comes to us. He draws near to us in the dark. And I know that if, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but there are so many of you in this room who would say, absolutely he does. You can bear testimony to this, the time that God met you in that place. And not only does he meet us in the dark, but he leads us out of the dark. Isn't that that what he does? That's what he's come to do, to lead us out. Perhaps you can't see it this morning, but there is light. There is light. Now, I know this is an Advent sermon, but isn't it true that the greatest fulfillment of this prophecy can be seen not in the manger, but in the empty tomb? Just think about what, what our God has done for us. You know, we, 
we talk about at Christmas time how he, he enters into the darkness of this world. Like our, our holy, holy, holy God sends his son into this world. And Jesus clothes himself in our frail, fragile flesh. And he comes and he lives with us. And he lives in this broken world, this messy world with all of our sin. And people mistreat him and his body aches. And, right? Because he's living under the curse of sin with us, for us. He comes into our darkness. He endures our darkness, the way that people treat one another, he's, he's there. He stands at the tomb of Lazarus. He weeps. He witnesses death, the curse of it all. And then more than that, he takes our darkness, the curse of our sin, with him on the cross. And he bears all of it in our place. But then he goes further into our darkness, doesn't he? What's the deepest, darkest place that, that leaves even the most courageous of us in fear? That, that dark room of death itself. But isn't that the place where we tremble and we say, oh, that's the darkness that I'm afraid of. And yet Jesus, he, he descends to the dead. He descends to the deepest, darkest place for us so as to lead us out. And three days after he descends, what happens? The people who were walking in the darkness saw a great light, didn't they? As he burst forth. Here is a light that cannot be suppressed even by the darkness of death. Here is a testimony that God's light shines even in the deepest, darkest place that death and sin and grave cannot hold back this light that has come into the world. We saw a great light. We have seen a great light. The light has come, and darkness is retreating. Sometimes it doesn't feel like darkness is retreating, but it is. And When Jesus comes again, death and sin and darkness will once for all be cast into the pit of hell, where it belongs, and it will be no more. This child of promise, Jesus, has come to bring light into our darkness. Second, he's come to bring joy or peace into our chaos. Look with me at verses three to five. He says, you have multiplied the nation. Now he's using, he's using past tense here, like you have done it. But this is before any of this has happened. This is called the prophetic perfect. This Isaiah is speaking and he's not hoping for this. He is, he is sure of this because God said it. That's, what, that's what's happening here. So he says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Remember, people are being slaughtered right now. The, they're fleeing for their lives coming here. And Isaiah stands up and he says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, he's talking about, yes, point at Assyria here, point at the enemy. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. That's, that would have been a powerful speech. Right, of course, especially since it's inspired by the Spirit of God. This, he's speaking on behalf of God. And he's saying, the day is coming when, and he uses this prophetic language, he says, the day is coming when we are going to be gathering around. We're going to be collecting up the spoils because God's going to bring about a victory, just like in the days of Midian. Anybody remember, what is he alluding to in the days of Midian? He's alluding to the story of Gideon. Gideon you remember that story? There's, the people of God are surrounded, and so Gideon, God raises up this, this man Gideon, and a big army comes up to support Gideon, and God sends them all away. And he says, no, you're going to win this with 300. And he sends Gideon with 300. And they, they send away God's foes, and they, they collect all the spoils. And this, God's like, this is what I do. I bring victory in times when it looks like a sure defeat. And just like I did in the days of Midian, I'm doing it again. And you're going to collect the spoils just like they did 
And then I love the language at the end of verse 5. He's like, and then you're going to warm yourselves around a fire with all of the, the bloody cloaks and garments and all of the boots from war. And you know why they're burning those things? Because they don't need them anymore. Because the war is done. This child is going to end the war. And, and, and Isaiah here, inspired by the Spirit, he's not just talking about the war with Assyria. He's saying this child is going to come and he's going to end war. He's going to end it. There will be no more war. He's going to bring peace. But how on earth is he going to do that? War, after all, is complicated. We've been freshly reminded of that in these recent days. How could he possibly bring an end to war everywhere? Well, he will do it by rooting out the disease that animates everything that is wrong with us. He's going to end the war by ending sin. That is the only way that you can end the war in this world. He needs to put an end to sin. He needs to get right to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem lies in the hearts of each and every one of us. He's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And praise God for that, because Jesus is the only one who could possibly do it. I don't know if you've thought about this, but if Jesus was just a good man, imagine, even if he was, if he was just a perfect man, could he pay for the sins of the world? The answer is no. That's like trying to, trying to solve world hunger with a nickel. One man cannot atone for the sins of the world. This is an infinite problem. People beyond number have sinned time after time against our infinite, holy, holy, holy God. One finite man could not serve as our substitute. That's impossible. But the infinite, mighty God in our flesh, he could do it. One who is truly God, infinite in power and might, and truly man, able to be our representative, he could do it. He could do it. And when the sinless Prince of Peace died on that cross, bearing the sin of the world, he did it. He satisfied the justice of God. He fulfilled the requirements of the law. He actually paid the price for my sin and for your sin and for the sins of all of those who would put their trust in him. He actually paid that price as only he could because he is our infinite mighty God. Our sin has been atoned for. Our infinite debt has been settled. Sin and death have been defeated. And now a way has been made for the sin that resides in our hearts to be rooted out and for the war to finally come to an end. He has done it. And yet, it feels dissonant saying that right now as wars rage all around us. If he has done it, then why is this world still such a mess? The place where this prophecy was initially spoken is right now in the midst of conflict and war once again. So has he done it? That brings us to our third and concluding point. What else will he do? He will reign forever. Look again at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the benefits of this God-King will only be felt in their fullness when we bow under his rule and his reign. And if, today, if you're here, if you have bowed under his rule and his reign, you have already felt the, 
the glimpses of this benefit, haven't you? you? We already feel the peace breaking in, the light breaking in, the hope breaking in. He's changing us slowly and steadily, not as quickly as we wish that he would, but he's, it's already happening, isn't it? We can, we can see the glimpses of it. Uh, the theological term we use is we're living in the now and not yet. Like he's done it, and yet we're waiting for the day when it will finally be culminated. But that's not to say he's not reigning now. He is reigning right now. Do you know that? When Jesus rose from the grave, he later ascended to the Father where he is now seated at the right hand. Jesus said before he left, all authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. So make no mistake, he is reigning right now. And yet, in this season that we're living in, there's this window where he is permitting us to persist in our rebellion. He, he is still allowing those who refuse to bow to continue on in their rebellion. Why would he do that? Right? And that's the reason why everything is, is still broken. That's why, we're, that's why there's still war. That's why there's still death, suffering. All of this is still here because right now he's on his throne, but he's permitting. It's like he's given the, the devils on, the, on a longer leash and he's allowing this to happen in our midst. But why? He could, he could just say enough's enough. He could, he could punish the wicked, those who have not surrendered to him. He could, he could finally once in a while do away with them. But why does he allow this window to persist? Second Peter gives us the answer. He tells us, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the Prince of Peace has extended his invitation to the world. And now in this difficult window, it's actually a window of grace. He's waiting. We've talked all these weeks about throwing the seed. And so you and I as witnesses, as those who have experienced the reign of the Prince of Peace and have caught these little glimpses of it, now is the window for us to go into the world and to invite everyone who will listen and say, bow down to the king. The, the opportunity to repent and to surrender to him is right now. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Do it now in joy and delight so that when that day comes, it won't be a day of fear and trembling, a day of judgment. But that's why the window is open right now. Because God in his grace has got this door open for those to turn to him. And praise God for that because you and I wouldn't be here today if that window wasn't open. Right? We have that opportunity to see and love, and he opened our eyes and he drew us to himself. And right now that window is open. We think of some of the loved ones that we have that we're praying for. We praise God that that window is open. And we are with all of our might, we're praying and we're seeking the lost, that they would come. Because he tells us that he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. J. Alec Machir says it so well. I like this line. He says, his people's shoulders are delivered when his shoulders accept the burden of rule. Saying, for us to experience this peace, we need to take off this responsibility to rule and we need to entrust that to him. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And it's only as he rules and reigns and leads that we can experience the peace of his rule. And I would say, even as Christians today, even if you're here and you'd say, I've surrendered my life to him and I've said, you're ruling in my life. Isn't it true that there are so many areas of our lives where we try to take back the power to rule and reign and we put it back on our own shoulders and try to, take it in our own strength, and it, and it bogs us down, right? The peace that we long for and that we were made for comes as we surrender the rule to him. Jesus said it better than J. Alec Machir. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sounds so simple. Sounds too good to be true. Are we really to believe that simply by coming to Jesus, by turning away from our sin and believing in him as our Savior, that we can finally experience the peace that has eluded us for a lifetime? Is that really the message that we preach to the world? The answer is yes. Yes. Does it seem impossible? Impossible that you could have peace with God after all that you've done? Impossible that there, there might actually be an answer for the weary soul? Impossible that your life could really change in an instant? Well, with man, that is impossible, but this is no mere man. This is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. This child is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So haste, haste to bring him laud, to bow your knee and surrender your life to the babe, to the son of Mary. He is our light, he is our peace, and he is our king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for, once again, the opportunity to turn our attention away from all of the things that would distract us. Lord, to the place where, they, where our attention needs to be, where our attention ought to be, which is on your Son. We thank you that you have sent him into our world as light in the darkness. And we marvel at the mystery that somehow, by your Spirit in us, you've now called us to be little glimpses and glimmers of light in the darkness. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to shine. Uh, Lord, we are mindful that, that the darkness is very real. Lord, we think about just our city and the, the things that are happening right now. Lord, help us not to be blind to the darkness that's all around us. Lord, there are people who are, who are absolutely lost and despairing, and they're looking for something. And the light has come, and you've called us to, to shine that light, to be ambassadors for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be courageous Lord, that through the words we say and the lives that we live, that your light would shine in the city of Aurelia. And then, Lord, we think of what's happening in the world. And, Lord, our brother Keith has already prayed for the wars that are right now raging on. And, God, we know that you are the only one who can bring peace. God, so we pray that you would miraculously move and shine your light. Lord, that these areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, these areas where the darkness is at its, at its worst, these areas where there is literal fear and trembling for their lives, Lord, that you would shine so brightly that those would be places where they would bear witness to the victory of Christ. Lord, we ask you to do it. It seems impossible. What can we do here in Aurelia? But Lord, we pray. And Lord, we trust that we pray to you who is powerful and able and mighty to save and to move. And God, we pray that you would. Lord, and I pray for those who are with us today in this room, just listening. Lord, maybe there are some here today who don't know you, uh, who don't love you. Um, you are not their king. They would not surrender to you as king. Lord, I pray that you would mercifully show them your goodness, show them their need. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they bow to Christ the King. Lord, I, I pray that as we prepare now to respond, that even now your Holy Spirit would preach in our hearts a better sermon than 
than anything I could ever write. And Lord, I just thank you that your word goes forth and it, it never, ever, ever returns void. Lord, so we thank you for the little things you do and the big things you do. And we invite you just to move powerfully in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?